0: What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking to Sin Fung Lim, a game designer, a developer, and an RPG writer with dozens and dozens and dozens of games on the market, many of them award-winning. But not only is Sin prolific in the gaming space, he's also a full-time clinical professor at a university. And so I talked to him about what it looks like to balance a full-time, 50-plus-hour-a-week job with all the designing, developing, and writing projects that he's also working on. We get into topics like how to design like crazy without burning out, how to get into a game design flow state and the things that can trigger that, the myth of being a self-made person and what it looks like to have a support system that actually helps you be a prolific creator, how to work effectively with co-designers, and a whole lot more. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Sin Fung Lim. So you have not only like a f- normal full time job but where it's just this like hey I go in at nine I come to five come out at five like you have a pretty serious job being a professor and you're teaching and you're grading papers you're taking stuff home you have so much going on but then you also have a pretty full time career as a creative person doing a ton of game design and writing and I'm sure all sorts of other things how in the world do you manage all that just from a sheer scheduling standpoint i i I think you sleep i have never seen you sleep so i don't know for sure but like tell me about your just general schedule to get all this stuff done
1: i have a very lucky position in life where my wife and i we just sort of allow each other the time and space we need to do what we need to do um and so we're not very demanding on each other's time and the the family unit runs very smoothly now that our kids are much older. Uh, But it's funny. I used to actually, I was actually more productive when I was a little younger. So probably, you know, I've been doing this for about, you know, 15 years. So maybe about five years ago, was probably like peak efficiency. Uh, But my kids were actually younger then, which was sort of weird. But we, because we had so much stuff going on, it just like ran like a, like a well-oiled machine. And so I'm very big on scheduling things. I schedule like my entire life. If my life becomes unscheduled due to something else happening, I am in a kerfuffle for like a day or two to reorganize everything. So it's, it's part and parcel of me being, you know, that's just the way my brain works, um, which is good. Uh, because i 'm hyper focused on certain things, but then bad because when I get unfocused i 'm completely lost, and things can throw me for a loop very easily, like my wife taking my car keys can throw me for a loop for a, a day entire day it's um, that day just is get it's it's lost now, and that 's part of it. The other thing that um I, I think if you look at my ludology ludography whatever you want to call it, most people recognize or should recognize that i I almost never design alone, like i 'm always designing with somebody else so and I know that as a person myself, that I just know myself very well, that I will not likely get it done if somebody else isn't helping to push the project forward when I'm not feeling motivated um, or I'm too busy or I let it slide and I can be that person for them when they let it slide because we're, we're human, we're not infallible and life gets in the way of things. And so just things like, hey, reminder, um, not like it's not like... <laughs> It's like an email that says, reminder, colon, you need to finish this. It's just like, hey, I was wondering if we're going to get together and talk about the game today, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I have lots of friends who are going through lots of stuff and life is difficult and hard for everybody just, you know, coming out of the pandemic. We're not really done it yet and going back to working, not from home and in the office. And. All the things that we could do during the pandemic, we no longer can do for other reasons. And then during the pandemic, it was also awful for all sorts of other reasons, right? So, uh, you know, I I think there's a lot to be said about scheduling, (laughs) a lot to be said about things like, you know, Gantt charts and agile (laughs) um, uh, systems management. And I do honestly rely heavily on my partners my design partners to keep me on track because i am not necessarily always the one to be on track i'm not always the one driving the project forward um i'm kind of the person who says you know oh if you're not if you're not making noise about it everything must be okay uh because that's how i am and that's you know a little bit egocentric of me in terms of you know how i think is how other people think um and that's not necessarily true either so Good communication between partners is really, really critical in terms of making the relationship or keeping the relationship and keeping the design process moving forward always. Um, When there are communication issues, you know, we really do need to talk about them. We need to discuss them uh, before they become even bigger problems. So I think... Yes, I don't sleep a ton, although I do now. It's funny. When I turned, what, I think maybe 45 or something, I all of a sudden started to need more sleep, which is weird because I know a lot of other people, as I get older, they need less sleep. But me particularly, it's like, oh, I guess it's all catching up. Because before that, I I honestly didn't sleep a lot. I would stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, working on games because Jay, my... Uh, primary game partner is out on the west coast and i'm on the east coast so we're like three hours apart so i would stay up after the kids went to bed and work on games for about three hours with jay and then go to bed and then um, wake up to work Um, which is not the best thing health-wise like don't do that people uh if you're if you're thinking about doing what I did, don't do it. It's it's not really smart. <laughs> it's just my body works that way and or oh, my brain did work that way and it does not anymore. And I'm I'm probably paying for it now in terms of catching up on sleep, the body really doesn't work that way either. So,
0: but I think that's a really good point right there is figuring out what works for you because so often we'll go to YouTube, we'll go to podcasts and be like, okay, here's a millionaire. Here's a a person that's hyper creative, whatever, you know, thing that we're looking at and we'll go, what works for them? What morning routine and what vitamins are they taking? And what's their workout (laughs) vision and all that. And then we'll try (laughs) to like recreate it. And then we wonder like, why doesn't this work for me? It's like, well, well, you're not you're not
1: them. We're yeah. all
0: unique in different ways. And there are, you know, some lessons that can be learned, but just because you wake up at four thirty and then go right to work, it doesn't mean anything. Like I'm a double digits guy. Like once we hit 10, like when we get to double digits, my brain works a lot better. And so I had to really r- learn that about myself and then plan and schedule things accordingly. And so I think that's, that's definitely the case. What are some other things on that topic? though? What are some other things that work for you that maybe other people could take away? Oh, and, and find
1: other hobbies. <laughs> Find hobbies outside of games. Um, Well, outside of game design. So it's funny as a game designer, when you get to a certain stage in your career, if you want this as a career, you will no longer play games for fun um, as much anyway. And so relish those moments, take those moments to actually play the game and take your designer hat off and really think about enjoying the game and the people you're with and things like that if you're not like a solo gamer where you're not with friends, that's fine too. Um, But I think that having hobbies outside of game design that are not even really related to game design are really, really vital to keep yourself energized, to give yourself something to do when you're frustrated with your game and you need somewhere to turn that maybe isn't game design uh, because, you will get frustrated it's it's a frustrating thing to make a game sometimes when things just aren't clicking and having something that you can do that's not a game related thing not even playing games or anything like that is wonderful so i train in martial arts i'm a black belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu and i teach three to four nights a week um and that is my release it's intact and there's this period of time i haven't done it lately i don't know why i stopped but um there's this period where you bow into class and that is literally my favorite 20 seconds of the day because my mind just clears. My problems just melt away. Everything just disappears. And for the next hour, I'm just teaching and training in a beautiful martial art. That's it. And then I put my clothes back on not that we train naked but i change clothes i change clothes into my non-sweaty clothes and i go back and i sit down and remarkably sometimes things click things oh i solved the problem now and i think grinding your head against the um cog of game design trying to force an answer isn't necessarily the right way to do things sometimes you have to go like attack it obliquely (laughs) if you know brian eno he's a musician and he made this deck of cards called oblique strategies and it's a hundred cards and they say weird things on them like have you ever thought about writing about a color (laughs) or something like that they're just strange things that kind of make you think differently about music and songwriting but really they're for any creative endeavor and so anything that can kind of get you out of your normal train of thought thinking about something else maybe thinking laterally instead of just always going forward and you know like i said grinding your your head against it butting your head up against it i think can be very helpful and i find hobbies that are not game related very useful for that because your brain sort of needs the freedom to do other things and um maybe just a little lateral movement can help. The same thing like with podcasts. I very rarely listen to game design podcasts. Sorry, Gabe. Uh, I don't even listen to my own and I have two of them, right? So I don't want to learn the things that I already kind of probably know or should know. And it's not saying that I know everything about game design and that other people in game design can't teach me anything. It's that I learn so much more when I listen to people from other fields that may be game adjacent, but also maybe not at all related to games. So my favorite podcast right now is um, Gastropod, which is the podcast that looks at food through the le- lens of science and history. I think i that's a direct quote. And it is just remarkable how much I learned from that and how much of it is like, oh, I could make a game out of that. Or I could, that relates to game theory or not game theory, like, well, sort of game theory, but game design. And the same thing with 99% Invisible, which is a great podcast about just general design architecture, that kind of stuff, design of the built world. Um, All of these things that you can kind of refresh your mind with and come back into the game design with maybe new perspectives and new ideas. So I think, you know, keeping your brain fresh Uh, and full of new ideas and not just stagnant and not just playing games though playing games is a really good idea obviously you know you need to kind of get a handle of all the the basics of game design um you know once you have kind of exhausted all that or once once you know a bunch about game design look outside game design to influence you and make you um have a, a fresher mind because it can be a thing that Creativity isn't a thing you can turn on and off, right? You can't just be creative, and that sort of goes towards my work ethic. So, I have because I write RPGs as well. I have like a thousand day, a thousand days, a thousand words a day kind of clock that I run every day, and I just write, and I don't care what comes out. Honestly, it just has to be done. Like writing has to happen, and. I guarantee myself, or I, I mean, I can't really guarantee myself, but I do sort of guarantee myself that something good is happening right now when I'm writing, and there's something in this writing that is going to be okay. And sometimes it takes, and sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to write a thousand words because it's just flowing off the top of the dome. And sometimes it takes me a while because I'm kind of pounding it out, um, and it's just mechanical, and I have to do it. So you could set yourself a time limit instead of a word limit. For me, word limit seems to work well. Um, I used to do, like last year when I was doing comics, it was a page a day. Um, Just write the script for a page. Write a script. And sometimes it takes like five minutes. Sometimes it takes an hour. Sometimes it takes two hours. Um, But it's the, the, at the end of the day, I had a page. That's what I cared about. And that I have this, you know, 365 in a year, roughly 365 pages of of script and then i could take the next year to cut it down to what it should be or develop it more into what it should be whatever it is so i set myself all these limits because i need something to keep me accountable Hmm. like i said i'm not the best at keeping myself accountable but if i have other things that keep me accountable like this goal i'm very goal directed um, that helps me to, to stay on top of everything and all my tasks.
0: Yeah. I like how you're talking about, you, you have to put exterior influences on yourself, whether it's co-designers or these goals or whatever it is, these deadlines, then, then they help you keep motivated and, and, and do the thing. Cause it's not magic. I feel like a lot of people, they think, Oh, creativity is just magical. And you sit down and, and some days you just find the motivation. It's like, no, you, you kind of create it. Yeah. If you wait for inspiration,
1: you might be sitting there for a very long time.
0: Yeah, yeah, as opposed to... Inspiration happens when I start typing. Exactly, exactly, to just begin. And that's one thing science has taught us is that motivation usually comes after you begin, not before. And so if you can just get going, and it makes sense from a physics standpoint, you know, objects in motion stay in motion. And so if you're able to just get yourself into motion, write a sentence, you know, think through one little, you know, small thing, And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, I can do that. And then you, you keep going. But I want to go back to what you were saying about hobbies, because I think this is a huge one that a lot of people miss, especially creatives. You know, they think I just need to spend 12 hours a day on this thing, which there are some benefits to that, but it's not sustainable by any stretch of the imagination. And so having hobbies, having things to take your mind off of the thing. One thing I got into is gardening and getting out in my yard and planting things and cutting the grass grass. and pulling weeds. (laughs) And one, I like it because it's it's not like mind, mindless is not the right word, but you can kind of turn your brain off and just do it. You know, if I'm just out there weed eating or cutting grass, I don't have to pay that much attention. Although one time I didn't pay enough attention with a chainsaw and almost cut my finger off. So if you're doing that, you want to pay more attention than I was. But what I love about yard work, is I might be working on a creative activity that I am just stuck and no progress is being made and everything I'm trying to do, nothing is productive. I'm just spinning my wheels, but then I can go outside in my yard and I can start with something. And then by you know an hour later, the thing has changed. I've built something. I've done something that there has been progress made. I felt productive. And so that kind of gives me that boost, that little dopamine to go, okay, all right, feeling a little better. Let's go back and see if we can try to attack the creative problem. You might even solve the problem while you're mowing the lawn. Maybe not the
1: chainsaw, but maybe mowing the lawn. It's the same, like for me, my favorite times of the day, um, other than that 20 seconds of bowing in into class, um it's showers and and washing dishes. I like washing dishes by hand. My kids hate it. Uh, because sometimes they have to help but the keeping my hands occupied but my brain almost completely unoccupied allows me to like really kind of get into this sort of zone where I think about nothing and that's when stuff fills it up the creative stuff kind of fills it up Um, So yeah, I mean, there is definitely inspiration from outside sources. There's definitely outside sources that help me to keep on track. But sometimes, you know, you have to dig it out from the inside. And it's either that sort of by habit method that I use when I write every day, or it's by just kind of letting stuff go and and let stuff flow. And so I probably have really high water bills because I take quite fairly long showers, but my showers are always very like, thoughtful. They are, I, I kind of just release all everything out there. So oh, I'm, I'm, I'm cleaning and I'm cleaning and I'm cleaning and stuff just pops in. And a lot of it is because I have really sensitive hearing which is why I wear cans all the time. Uh, I wear headphones a lot. Because if I hear anything, like I, I can hear light bulbs and things like that. So when I hear those things, my brain sort of focuses on the things that I shouldn't focus on. And when there's like white noise, like water running, specifically water running, uh, really gets me in a position where my brain can now be free to think about the things that aren't in my environment, immediate environment. And so I can think about hypothetical situations. I can think about games that don't exist yet. I can think about stories that really are fantastical. So those are the times that I really value um, for working. Yeah, that makes sense. It doesn't feel like work.
0: (laughs) Right. I want to go back to what you were talking about first is Mm -hmm. the ability almost to obsess. I read an article by Cal Newport. Recently, and he talked about one of the things that he was finding in all of his interviews and talking to people was that successful people typically have one common trait, and that's the ability to be hyper focused and just obsessive about finishing a project, not just about the thing in general, but about getting something across the finish line. And so, and and it's also Kind of what you're talking about earlier, you're like, used to be more efficient. It's like, what's the old saying? If you want want to get something done, ask a busy person because they're already in that mode. They're already flying around. And so talk to me just about what does obsession look like for you? Does that mean, hey, I'm going to just spend all day, like literally all day on a thing? Or is it kind of blocked off in chunks over, you know, uh, uh, over time? What does it look like?
1: Yeah, so it has to be blocked off in chunks for me, but it has to be. Um, If I'm given a blank canvas of a day, I will sleep (laughs) most of that day (laughs) like i will waste a good portion of that day but when i have a very very full calendar i'm a machine uh because my brain again works this way where i see things on a checklist that have to get done then they have to get done and um if i'm goal directed if there's time especially if there's other people expecting something like a due date or you know i told my students that i'd have this paper marked by friday it's getting marked by Friday because I'm accountable to somebody else when I'm accountable to just myself, that that doesn't have to happen. And like I'm my own worst enemy for that kind of thing. But in terms of like obsession, what it looks like is uh, I've missed many, many meals Uh, and I've missed many, many um, you know, times when it's like, Oh, you should be in bed by now. So, I get into what uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi would call a flow experience, of, um, and you might have heard flow uh, described when we talk about game design, we talk about flow experience quite a bit. Um, but in general, what Csikszentmihalyi meant by flow was that you just get in this state where you lose track of time because the occupation that you're engaged in is so meaningful to you in many levels. Um, And what he usually talks about is skill versus challenge. So when there is a rising challenge and you have not enough skill, you will disengage because of anxiety versus when there is high skill, but low challenge, you will disengage because of boredom. And the thing about game design and good games follow this pattern as well. A good game will... Increase the challenge as the player's skill increases, right? But game design typically works that way as well, right? That as you progress through a game and making one, it's like, oh, this new thing, oh, this new thing, oh, I could add that. And your like brain is starting to think about all these things. And that's really, I think, why so many people are into analog game design right now, right? Because video game design. Takes a whole skill set that a lot of people just don't have, and so your skill uh, is outweighed by the challenge. In that case, you can't get into a flow experience. But in analog game design, you know the challenge, the challenge, the challenge increases, increases, increases. But as you listen to podcasts, as you play more games, as you read the forums, as you do all these things, your skill can increase alongside it at a much more respectable pace right where you're in that we call it a flow channel where you're not getting disengaged because it is so
0: interesting the whole time right yeah that's a really good point and with video game design there's there's just so many other things that you might not even have access to whether it's different coding languages you might not have a computer that could run it but i mean game design hey, do you have some note cards do, do you have a cube do you have a die you know and so you can just jump right in because the barrier to entry is so low and i've even talked to a lot of video game designers who who start off designing a board game oh, because yeah. they can get the you know the first version yeah, into the it's world yeah it's
1: such a an easier way to rapidly prototype something in a playable format um, and a lot of video game design schools are now recognizing that i mean they've recognized it for a little while now that and they have like the first design course is actually analog game design that they do and then they are learning some of the skills for like, you know, rigging and sound design and all that other stuff as they go through that. But the game that they make first is analog. And
0: then they graduate from that into something else. Right. Absolutely. So you've they mentioned, walk. right. So you've mentioned, you know, other people in your life, mm-hmm. co-designers, your wife, There's the old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I am a big fan of like, let's bring in people. Let's make a team because I want to go as far as possible. Uh, I talked to somebody a while back and they said, hey, what's your number one piece of advice to get into just creative work in general? And I thought for a minute and I was like, marry the right person. And that was not (laughs) what they expected. But 100% that is in my life, especially I look at my wife and how awesome she is and how supportive and helpful and, and like right now we're recording this podcast and my kids are somewhere else. So they're not hopefully making as much noise as they normally would. And it's coming through on the mic, you know, like there's so many things that my wife does to help support the creative work. And so talk to me about just your marriage in general, like how do how do things work as far as your wife being supportive and, and helping you? And then also we'll, we'll get into like co-designers and other people on your team that kind of support everything.
1: I think my wife just recognizes that if I don't do this, life will be very sad for everybody (laughs) um not because i'll just be grumpy i i've always been a creative person and she knows that and she apparently uh values that um so i think she'd have a different view of it if it didn't bring in you know money that's a, a very good point to it, I suppose. When you're at you know a stage in your career that it's actually bringing in money, because you know she doesn't she doesn't put claim on my time, and I really don't put claim on her time. As you know, this is our time. Why aren't you doing this? Um, we're very easygoing when it comes to that. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think having a partner that respects you and that you respect. Um, And that you value for the efforts that they put into making your life possible. So, I mean, there's a lot to say about unpaid labor and what women do in the world that the world just doesn't seem to value as much, Um, but that we as husbands probably should, (laughs) Um, especially those of us who are involved in an industry that is basically based around fun and you know a pastime and a hobby and all that kind of stuff, where yes, it is serious business, and yes, you know, I sign big contracts, and yes, I work on ips that are worth multiple millions of dollars, sometimes more than that,, uh, but the work that my wife does um she's also a therapist, so you know she's obviously highly educated but you know, the idea that I can go away for five days to a conference or convention while she's at home taking care of the kids, that shouldn't go without recognition. Um, and there isn't any pay for that. There, Nobody pays you for that, which is sort of this interesting thing. And not that I think it should be paid, but it definitely should be recognized. Like unpaid labor is something that really does need to be considered when we think about you know how we treat women in society today and what we are expecting of people versus what we're you know thinking about for ourselves and so when we talk about things like oh the representation in board gaming amongst designers specifically is very male centric and we're now seeing more women get into it and that's great and wonderful But a lot of people who will push back and say, oh, you know what? They can design games just as well as you can. It's like, yeah, but can they get to the conferences? Can they travel freely? Can they do all these things, right? Um, Because guaranteed, I guarantee you that there would be side eyes given to a woman who left her kids with her husband for seven days to go to Gen Con to pitch a game that may not get, signed uh whereas if a man went there there's nobody's gonna look twice right it's it's just a very big double standard that society has so yes uh i love my wife i value her (laughs) i think she is wonderful and yeah it's without without her this none of this is possible right um because we wanted to have children we love our children (laughs) they're great uh they play games with me they're great that way um and you know hopefully one day they'll maybe design a game with me that'd be fun and my wife plays games with me too so she does some testing she particularly likes testing all the puzzle games that Jay and i make and so i I, you know i think we don't give enough credence to the luxury that we're afforded um a bunch of the dudes anyways are afforded by having wives that are very supportive so Kudos to all the women out there who are getting it done. Um, and thank you very much for your support um, to my wife, Carrie. There you go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of this, this old story I heard. I think it was a pastor, one of those old white preacher stories. And it was this guy and he, he was a multimillionaire, had this huge business, you know, and he and his wife were on this vacation and they were driving through some small town. They stopped at a gas station and the guy was out pumping gas and his wife went inside, to get some chips, go to the bathroom. And so the guy, he got done pumping gas, he goes inside and he sees his wife up at the the counter talking to the cashier. And they're like very chatty, not like flirty exactly, but like there's, you know, they seem to know each other. And so anyway, the, the wife says, oh, okay, well, we got to go. And she, you know, says bye. And then they get back in the car and they drive away. And as they're driving, the guy's like, oh, who, who was that? And, and his wife says, oh, that was a, uh, that's my boyfriend in high school. Yeah, it's crazy to see. And you know, now he's, you know, you're just kind of working at a gas station and the the husband, he kind of. Puffs up a chest a little bit and he's like, huh, are you thinking about how uh, you're glad you you married me and not him? And she says, no, I was thinking about if I had married him, he'd be a millionaire. <laughs> and I think we, we don't talk about that enough, about how the support system and the people in our lives, like we have all these people who claim to be self-made men, self-made people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just preposterous. It is so stupid. Like I look at the relationships in my life that have allowed me any semblance of success. And it's, it's them. It was what I learned from them. It was support I got from them. In some ways it was maybe even the the downside. Like I had to go prove them wrong, but I can still look at them and go, thank you because you helped me get to where I wanted to go. And so I think that's something that we just need to have that conversation with ourselves regularly and just society in general, oh, yeah. look in the mirror and go, I am not me because of me and how ridiculously mm-hmm. narcissistic <laughs> that is. And uh, yeah. yeah to your point.
1: Yeah, the the whole myth of the self-made person is is very romantic. It's very enticing, but it's also probably quite false. Um, I talk a lot with my students about the theory of interdependence, right, versus independence, uh, because the students that I teach will go on to serve and support people with disabilities. And so we talk about the idea that independence is sort of this myth that's held up as a standard but that none of us really are truly independent and even if we were would we like that right because independence would probably also mean like completely isolated and cut off from society in a lot of ways if you take it to an extreme and that most of us rely so heavily on other people that if those other people were gone our lives would be in shambles for a lot of the day, a lot of the week, a lot of the month, we'd be we wouldn't be able to do what we do. And so, you know, to keep the world kind of running and the society kind of running, we kind of have to understand that, which is why I I just don't understand a lot of different types of I mean, I understand that they think that way. But I also don't understand why they think that way. So a lot of people who are very much into like self-sustained living on the living by themselves and on the land and like well how are you getting to that land well there's a road well okay who pays for that road and all that kind of stuff which is maybe slanting on the political side of things but um my point being that I, I think that even those people even those people are probably interdependent at some level because we can't do everything that we want, unless we want very little.
0: And then maybe you can be right. I totally agree. And let's keep talking about that. Talk to me about your co-design relationships. And what does that look like? Is it like you have certain things scheduled, you know, every Tuesday at 8pm, we meet and we do this or tell me. about Yeah,
1: yeah. So um, it changes every semester because I my courses change every semester in terms of what day and time they're taught at. But usually I have enough time to meet Um, With Jay or Lara, who are the people that I mainly design with, uh, and Banana on a regular basis uh, when we have projects running, which is almost always. Um, And so we will schedule around the time zone differences because, well, now Banana's out on the West Coast, Jay's on the West Coast, Alara's about an hour away from me, um, though she used to live in the same city. So that was easier when she lived here, but now she doesn't, and that's sad, but... Um, So all of that has really changed a lot because we have to align times when uh, families aren't, you know, loud, I guess. I don't know what the word is for that. Um, When we're free to do the things that we have to do for game design, which is usually jump on tabletop simulator and play a game or talk about something and design stuff online now, um, because COVID's still a thing, travel is still not always easy. And now that we all live very far apart from each other, um, we are designing more and more over like a Google Doc and TTS than in person, which is weird because I am literally preparing to make the very first physical prototype I've ever made. Uh, well, that's not true. I've made in the last mm, three or four years, right? And it's like, oh, I, I wonder if my exacto knife is still sharp (laughs) i don't know i haven't used it in four years so we're just starting to get back into that which is good uh because i think once we get back to physical prototyping i think things will get a little more concrete for us and a little more um a little more real again um when everything's virtual and timelines are weird and and shaky and not really like physical and in my hand we tend to we don't tend to but sometimes we've lost track of progress sometimes we've lost lost track of timelines like oh my gosh it's like this is the year it's been a year since we were starting working on this what happened in that year and you look at your hands and there's nothing in it but oh there's like 17 versions of tts yeah but it doesn't quite count doesn't feel like it counts to me so yeah we we definitely schedule times when we meet uh, and as people's lives have changed, like Banana moved to the West Coast, Alara got a new job. Alara found herself, um, you know, adopting a family, basically, or having an instant family when she uh, entered a new relationship. And so all of those things in the pandemic, especially, have especially has changed kind of how we work. Um, and there's life changes going on for for everybody right now. So it's it's getting it's getting messy. But Again, like I said, I think once we have that physical touchstone of an actual prototype, things will get a little more real for us again. Um,
0: yeah, one thing not I've that learned virtual is not real, but I just don't like it. <laughs> right, and one thing I've learned too is that anything I do virtually that I could also do in real life, the virtual version takes at least twice the time. So if something's normally going to take an hour, if I'm going to sit down and talk to somebody, like it's a two-hour deal. If it's going to be online, it just seems like. Have you found that to be the case? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I mean, there's the the TTS tax that we call it, which is about you know one third of your time is spent just changing colors of things. And once I'm talking about like a fully made thing, it's like oh we need to we need to like change something or oh this didn't work quite right or you're loading stuff in or you're updating Steam or whatever, and it's just like ugh. And then you like flip the table and have to start all over again or something by accident, right? So yeah, TTS itself is a, a huge time hog. Um it's great that we can use it and I I value its existence, but I dislike using it greatly. Um, yeah, and then things that you could explain easier by showing people and by doing it gets really difficult when you're communicating just in words, like in text. Uh, text lacks all the nuances. Text lacks body language, and so, luckily, Jay and I have been doing this for almost two decades. Where Jay's been on the West Coast, and I've been here, and so we we started out designing via a forum, of all things. We made a two-person forum, Jay and me. This is before Discord ever existed. It's like a PHPBB, uh, way back in the day. It was a bulletin board for two people, and that's where we designed like Belfort on. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, we've been doing this for a long time and it actually does help because I think both of us are very good at articulating what we mean in words now or at least better than we were before. We still make mistakes all the time with uh, how we describe things to people because we make assumptions, right? We assume that, oh, you understand what I'm talking about, and I'll just explain it as simply as I could, and you'll get it, won't you? And they don't. (laughs) But when we had to type everything out on the forums, it was really, you had to explain yourself. And if you didn't, then somebody said, I don't get it. Can you re-explain yourself? And you would, because, oh yeah, the text that I wrote was ambiguous or whatever, or you'd add a diagram. And so I, I think the process of Working with a co-designer just helps you work on your communication skills and your rules writing skills and your diagramming skills and all those skills that are necessary to teach the game to another person, Uh, which may be why we're successful in some way, shape and form is because we've already run it through the gauntlet of some other person saying whether or not this is valid, right? Whether or not this is a good way of doing something, whether or not this is how they would do something. And the pro the co-design process isn't always, you know, fun and games and it isn't always roses. Uh we have arguments, um, which are generally easy because at the end of the day, after both of us or three of us or whoever's on the team lays out their case study for why they think it should be a cost of four gold pieces instead of five gold pieces or whatever, you know, we just play the game and we test it and invariably one of us will have to raise our hand and say, yeah, you were right. <laughs> right. Because we tested it. We proved it on the table and I'm not going to say it's me all the time. Cause it's not. And I'm not going to say, it's the other person all the time. It's not, it's probably about 50 50 because a lot of times feeling outweighs mathematics in game design that you'll find, you'll find this out. If you're just starting game design, you'll find this out pretty, pretty shortly that, yeah, mathematical perfection is a good place to start, but it almost never ends there for all things. It might end there for some things. But for the really, really important things that you want to have have great gravitas and magnitude to their gameplay experience, you might need to swing a little wider than you know a one, two, three cost. Maybe it's a one, three, five cost system now. Because that five just feels oh so much better to you know pay five and get this giant machine that you're gonna wreck havoc with, or whatever your game is. So yeah, I, you know I think working with other people really does help to solidify your chops in terms of explaining games and justifying your decisions. So as a clinical therapist, when I teach students, that's my number one job is I have to teach them how to rationalize. Verbally rationalize or rationalize in writing your clinical decisions so that people who are you're working with understand why you're doing what you're doing. Um, And the same thing happens in game design. It's like, okay, this is what I'd like to happen. Here's why. And when you work by yourself, you never have to explain the why. And so you might get caught down um, roads that maybe shouldn't be followed. But when you have somebody else as a check and balance saying, can you explain why? And you can't, (laughs) maybe you shouldn't go that way. Or, you know, sometimes just a feeling might be good enough to say, oh, it's just the way I feel. I think this would be better this way because, and that goes to the kind of the statement that sometimes feelings outweigh the math of it all, right? That the perception of reality is often... The feeling that you get from the game and we really are making games in my opinion as a boxed experience right it's a curated boxed experience that the designers want you to experience something very specific when they put it all in that box and sometimes math doesn't make the experience better it just kind of codifies it makes it into a hierarchy and then pushing the boundaries on that math now make the feelings much more visceral to the human who may not think in, you know, numbers as well as a machine does, right?
0: Yeah. And then another thing I I think you're bringing up here is something I've run into with, with having to write it down. And having to explain it to another person in writing before you get to, you know, oh, we're writing the final rule book is so valuable because I can't tell you how many times I've created something that I thought was really cool, but I could not put it into words. I just could not explain it in a way in writing that it made sense to enough people to say, yes, we're going to we're going to do this thing. And knowing oh, that yeah. early versus knowing that late is so, so valuable. And so I, I think there's so much you know to learn just right there. Yeah, Even if, if, it's if just I like can't... writing it Yeah, go ahead.
1: If I can't teach it to a person in writing, I don't put it in the game.
0: Yeah,
1: I just cut it out. Like if it takes me, and if it takes me more words in writing than it takes me in speaking to explain something to a person, plus diagrams and arrows and things, I usually try to cut it out of the game or design it so it's simpler. It's like that's a problem. We need to like simplify that Uh, because if it's confusing (laughs) on paper to people who know how to play the game or to me who wrote the game or made the game, it's going to be so much more confusing to people who are just picking this up for the first time. Right. So we have to kind of stop assuming that people know how to play the game. We have to maybe check our own egos and say, Oh, it's not because they're, um, they're not smart enough to understand the game. It's because these rules are opaque, uh, or they're very convoluted, or they're only necessarily necessary in like this very specific edge case. So how would I expect people to remember that? I wouldn't remember that, right? So the idea of empathy as being a huge design skill is really, really important, and one that I think is undervalued. Um, if you are Doing anything with design where somebody else is going to someday maybe interact with the thing that you designed, whether it's a door or a game or a light bulb or whatever, you have to have some empathy uh, towards the end user, right? So, this is why user experience, UX, is so important because your user experience may be different than somebody else's user experience, but you should aim to understand how other users interact with your built product your designed product uh, because that will by a large affect how they feel about it and their ratings of it and their evangelizing of it or they're talking about it or selling it to other people right um, and you, you've seen examples of this just in in board games where you're like i don't know why this game is so popular and then people talk about it or explain it to you or you god forbid go play it and now you get it because it's the experience that matters, not the mathematics of it that matter, right? Or not the, not the um, nuts and bolts of it. And it's the holistic experience of it that make it so great. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot to it about making things as approachable as possible, having empathy to the players for the players. Uh, that it's not just this designer as this you know omnipotent figure handing down rules. Those rules have to be interpreted and understood. Uh, and when they're not interpreted and understood in the way that they're intended to be, things go poorly. And um, <laughs> my area of, of expertise is actually communication science, right? So um, communication isn't just me talking to you, right? Communication is when you, Gabe, have the same idea in your head that I intended you to have that's in my head. That's communication. We both agree that Gabe's shirt is very blue. Right? Do you agree? I agree. Right. Then now we communicated, right? Right. But when a designer is just writing rules, we're assuming communication's happening. But is it really? It isn't if the reader doesn't have the same idea that you had in your head at the time. For something like technical writing and rules writing, that's very important. For something like a novel not as important right because people can interpret words differently and that's allowed that's fine but if you expect your game to be played the way it's supposed to be played you need to make some real attempts at understanding how people on the other side of the rules will interpret those and understand those rules right so it's it's very important to test your rules that it's actually more important to test your rules than it is to test your game
0: yeah absolutely But because this but is also a situation... test your game. Right. This is a situation where if you get something wrong in the rules, potentially the entire experience is broken and it's not. Gonna oh, yeah. Work.
1: The experience is very broken. And yeah. that's the thing about these designer games, these boutique games, these games that have people's names on them, et cetera, et cetera. They are intended with a purpose, typically. Right. There is some authorial intent, usually. I know there's definitely pushback against that and mass market games aren't necessarily like that. And that's where most people have their first game experiences. But they're simpler, right? But for sure, I have an intention when I make a game and I have an intended experience that I'd like you to have when you play that game. And if you don't, that's not your fault. That's actually my fault because I probably didn't communicate how to have that experience as strongly as I should have, or as cleanly, as clearly as I should have or could have. And then maybe also I didn't design it well enough for you to have that experience because the design isn't just the game itself, it's the whole package, right? It's a product now and we have to start thinking about product design
0: as opposed to just game design. Right, speaking of products, speaking of projects, you seem to have a lot all the time so tell me, how many projects do you work on at any given time? Tell me just uh, how, do you, you know, how do you keep so many things, how, many, how do you keep so many plates spinning at the same time, it seems like?
1: Um, well, like I said, I think because I have good partners, uh, both in marriage and in design, uh, I, I ally myself with good publishers as much as possible. Has it happened where I've signed something with a not-so-great publisher? Of course. That happens because you're trying to do what you want to do and get your games out there. You you might make mistakes, or it might not even be a mistake at the time, but it turns out at the end that it didn't work out. Right. So, um, a lot of times, I think, I think as people get more serious about games, which is a funny thing to say, there has been a lot more emphasis on project management, uh, which has been a godsend for people like me who are very much, you know, the creatives who get lost with their heads in the clouds and don't come down out of there for days and realize that, Oh, I had a deadline three days ago. And so having people who are project managers to just guide you to check in on a daily, on a weekly basis, monthly basis, whatever it is, has been really good. Uh, And I actually find that certain companies are much better at this than other companies and I, I wish that more companies would hire project managers to guide their creatives, uh, because that lack of communication between all the heads—that's where problems crop up. That's where deadlines are missed. That's where you know people's expectations are failed, and that's where people become unhappy. If we're all kind of on the same wavelength, if there's a big project and somebody's managing it, then. You know, I, I think that's where we get some of the best best products out of is when something is, is highly not managed to the point of micromanagement, but guided, like really well guided. And so I've been lucky to be a part of several projects, bigger projects where that guidance is, is really coming through um, and coming through in spades where it's like, oh, yeah, if you didn't do that, I would have totally forgot. Yeah. Because people live lives. And that's the other thing that I think um, you have to understand is that for most of us, this isn't our full-time job, right? Even though these are big projects, even though we're working with major IPs, it isn't my full-time job. And if my my job that is my full-time job has a demand, that gets met first. And if my family has a demand, that gets met even quicker. And the reason why is because I am literally not on your payroll. You haven't paid me a cent yet. There's no money in this for me. And that, and that's just basic behavioral psychology, right? Where I'm getting the reinforcement from is what I'm going to do. And I, I can't be any clearer about it. And, you know, there may be some publishers out there who go, wow, that's that's not great. Well, then, you know, hire me instead of licensing my my thing or give me a... Uh, a stipend or um, you know an advance that is something that is committal as opposed to 500 bucks or whatever like I, 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 I don't want to sound like you know this is you know I'm on my high horse or anything but I make I make 500 bucks in less than four hours so I don't I don't know what your 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 claim on my time is with a very small advance. And I don't need your advance. I don't want your advance, but if you want my time and if you expect things on deadlines, yes, I will work towards those deadlines. I will do that kind of stuff. But if you want more of that, then it becomes a situation where we need to renegotiate, right? So that's that that is something else. Like I have I've definitely as my career has changed trajectory a little bit. Uh, become much more staunch I guess on my contractual obligations like when publishers are changing the scope uh, of a project scope creep happens when that happens you know my foot comes down and said hey this wasn't in our contract if you'd like me to do this I'd be more than happy to I have the time however blah, blah 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 or I might say hey I don't have the time you're gonna have to hire somebody else to do that part like if, like the, the very common example was over pandemic is a, everybody that asked for like solo modes for games it's like i don't have the time to do that or i do have the time to do that but you know that isn't in the scope that's not what we signed so that's an additional thing right right uh we need to renegotiate renegotiate percentages or payment and they're like why wouldn't it just be in the same percent. I said, well, you know, if I don't do it, but you want it, who are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to go hire somebody else to do it. You'd pay them a couple thousand dollars. Why aren't you paying me a couple thousand dollars? Yeah, I'm the one that made the game, right? So yes, we're all friends in the business. A lot of us are very good friends with each other, but it's still a business at the end of the day. And it's like, it's not a business for me because it's money. It's a business for me because I have to, gauge what gets my time because i have a lot of things pulling at me uh which is maybe my fault in a way right but also that i think publishers need to start thinking about respecting the time of freelancers like i don't have benefits from this publisher i don't have anything from this publisher other than a piece of paper that someday if they publish this game they may pay me six cents on the on the dollar right Seven cents on the dollar, eight cents, on, whatever it is, and um, that's great, but that's where my work ends, right? I'm not your employee, so we we need to think about that. Um, and there's there's some movement in the industry towards towards thinking about you know how how are freelancers treated in the industry, especially when our time is which is kind of the topic of this whole talk, you know, their time is very much spread between many, many, many things. Um, it all changes when you're self-publishing because that's, that's you doing you and that's, that's fine. You do whatever you want. But when you're working with somebody else, I think that's the with is the key word there. You're not working for them. You're working with them. You're partnering in this. You They license this thing from you because they wanted to partner with you. And yes, their idea might be good. Like, oh yeah, this needs a solo mode or this could use, you know, two extra characters. It's like, yes, it could. Do I have the time to do that is another question, right? So project management, I think is a huge thing that um, would be great to have. Uh, more developers would be great to have because a lot of times there are designers like, I can't think any more about this thing. i I put two years of my life into this. I've exhausted myself. My brain is at a mental block where I can't see the way forward in this, but it's a good game. It's a solid game. You've signed it. Can you take it the rest of the way? That's where developers come in. And it's pretty funny, like as a developer, I've developed, I don't know, 20, 30 games for other people. I love development because it's not my game and I can see a way forward where the other person couldn't. I believe everybody should get (laughs) their games developed by somebody else because it just adds that little final bit of extra spice to it that makes it something better than what it was before while retaining the core qualities of what it was initially. And so uh, Alara and I, when we do development for other people, that is our number one goal is to retain the initial vision of the designer Uh, While meeting the product requirements of the publisher. That's it. And if that's our touchstone and we do a whole process to ensure that we're doing this, um, then any work that we do is good. That's sort of the, the fallout of that is that nobody's going to be unhappy because we met the product goal and the designer's initial vision is honored and maintained, right? We asked the designer things like, so what is, you know, a no-go? What can't we, what is something that we can't chop out, right? What is something that we, you don't want to be out of here? Uh, what can go, what cannot go? But in the end, right, we've done whole games where we stripped out a whole bunch of stuff, but the feeling and the experience was the same. And that's all the designer really wanted, right? Because that cool mechanic that didn't get used, they can use it in something else. It just wasn't fitting the vibe, did not pass the vibe check. Right. So, yeah, there's, there's a developers, I think, are something that is def- definitely needed um, to help bridge those gaps, right? To help um, be somebody that can be a hired gun, paid to come in and, and do some of the work that maybe the designer can't do if they're a freelancer right and then project manager to keep said freelancers and developers and everybody kind of on time. I think those are all good things to do um, to help people manage time because a lot of it can't be just you a lot of it has to be external to you because as a freelance designer, you are literally a cog in a bigger machine, right you are one part who may or may not have a lot to do anymore but when, your time comes up and say, oh, designer, we need something from you. You need to know all the other things that happened. Right. So stay in the loop if you're a designer if you want. Or you can just kind of sign off and say, nope, I don't need to be involved in any of the rest. I'm okay with whatever you do. And then you kind of have to live up to that and be okay with everything that they do. Or you can be as involved as you want, um, just realizing that it will take time and it's likely going to be unpaid unless There is a very big ask that you're like, wait a minute, that's out of scope. So be protective of your time. uh, Because here's the thing about being a freelancer is that your time is actually more valuable making new things than it is spending on product that's already signed. And that's a very mercenary way of looking at it, right? Because and here's the thing. In a system that spits out four to five thousand games a year, a year, the chances of your one game becoming an evergreen is pretty low, unfortunately, sad to say. And so it's not a publisher-parish story, but it is a the more skews you have to your name, if we're talking very mercenary, the more likelihood you will have residual income on an ongoing basis, right? Yeah, How many games,
0: how many projects do you find yourself working on in a given year?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. You asked that question. I forgot to answer. (laughs) Um, So games themselves uh, other than like, you know, podcasts and whatnot. So games themselves probably about six at a time, seven at a time, eight at a time. It depends. So now that Jay has picked up the publishing mantle Uh, And we're doing games for him. We're doing more games, but we have to... We're not doing as many games, if you know what I mean. Like, we're doing more games specifically for that, as opposed to many games and hoping that they'll get picked up by some other publisher. So it's sort of... At the beginning of our career, as a team, we made tons and tons and tons of games of varying different styles. Um, We actually have a very large ludography that has like weird games in there like oh you made a trick-taking game oh you made a cooperative game oh you made a dexterity game what's going on can't you guys pick one type of game to make it's like no we want to make all games all times we wanted to basically position ourselves as people who publishers could come to when they wanted a specific type of game and done very well um and we did that uh, we're pretty much the go-to people for a lot of companies they say hey can Sen and Jay do this thing? I think they have time, right? And they'll reach out to us and we'll say, oh, that sounds cool. Let's do that. Or we'll pitch them a game or um, do you have some ideas? But especially when people have very specific IPs that they know that we like, they'll reach out to us to make those games for those specific IPs. And so now that we're doing that with Jay's company, Off the Page Games, uh, which is independent indie comics, uh, creator-owned comics very specifically where the artist and the writers own all the rights, the comic book. Um, those are the games that we want to make because we love comics. And so that's where we're spending a lot of our effort right now is to help Jay's company get out their third and fourth and fifth games. Um, and then I usually have two to three role playing games kind of going at once, um, whether they're in the process of just testing or writing or whether they're already signed and I have to make it. Um, like right now, I have three that are signed. Um, that have to get made. So some of them I'm on a team. Uh, some of them I'm just a writer. Some of them I'm just writing the adventure or the mechanics or both. Some of them I'm creating from the ground up by myself or working with banana or somebody else to make them. So RPGs are slightly different because you can be involved uh, very small roles or very big roles, right? So for some projects, they might just say, hey, can you write a character? And I'll write like one NPC uh, as a stretch goal for somebody. But, you know, it takes some time. Like, you know, it might take a day or two to write that. And some people, it's like, hey, can you write us an adventure? And I take a week to write an adventure. And some people, it's like, hey, can you do all the mechanics on skill building trees? It's like, yes, I will do that. That takes like a month or two. Some people, it's like, oh, we need a whole game about this IP. Do you want to take the lead on that? It's like, okay. And then that takes like a year to write. So there are all these varying different ways of, uh, that's very different than board games i I find board games you know you're making the whole thing or you might get called in to make like a solo mode uh, and that's kind of about it as a designer you're more likely to get called in as a developer to work on the whole thing developing the whole thing um and that's cool too so i do design work on maybe you know 10 to 15 projects a year and then development work on another probably 10 projects a year, depending it keeps me busy. Yeah, yes. no doubt. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of what it is. And then um, development work is very like time limited, right? So it's real easy to kind of slot my time in and say, I have this much time to take on this many projects. Um, because the way that we run development usually is we're doing like the initial development and then we make suggestions and we say if you want to do those suggestions yourself go right ahead but if you want to hire us to do those let's have another talk and a lot of times the publishers can take it and run with it by themselves because we clearly line out what should be done we don't necessarily do all the numbers and the math but we say here's what we would do if you were to give us this project but you can go do that yourself and in some cases you know maybe we'd rather they do that or maybe they're wholly sufficient to do that because they're good designers themselves they just couldn't see where to go and they don't have to take all the suggestions they can just take some of the suggestions and we're we're happy with all of that Um, and so that's a lot easier to slot in and then design stuff is you know kickstarter has made the world a little bit weird um in that a lot of people a lot of publishers are like oh no we have to hit this specific deadline because we want to kickstart by now or kickstart by this other time or whatever. And then working with IPs is also pretty difficult sometimes because you're trying to line it up with the release of a movie or, you know, oh, that IP is no longer hot, so we're canceling it. Or that's happened a couple times. It's not very, it's not very happy <laughs> days for us because usually we have spent quite a bit of time on the IP or we've invested in, or we really just love the IP. And so all that stuff gets, uh, gets difficult, but timelining of this all out is, is basically having, you know, cat calendars that where everything is put on there and you balance it all out and you slot in times and you make sure that you have time for yourself and some time to sleep and some time for rest. That's all good. That's all very important. Um, the other thing I must mention is that because of my profession, I have also the luxury of having a lot of time off um, because I teach 10 months of the year and I work and I don't teach two months of the year, right? So I have two whole months, two solid months where I'm not teaching at all. Uh, And because I do not do research, I'm not that type of professor. I'm a clinical professor. um, I don't have to do research during those two months. So I'm basically just off. But I also am contracted for 45 to 50 hours a week, which is not your normal workload. So I work more than most people during the year um, because marking is incredibly taxing. Um, You know this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It it takes so much more than people realize to mark papers and mark them well and give good feedback in a timely manner and all these things that you hope will help your students, you know, graduate um, and learn something from what they just did, right? That not everything is summative. Uh, And so... Um, yeah those two months off are basically the first two weeks I sleep and then the last six weeks I write so that's yeah. how that works <laughs> Gotcha. Well, Sam, this has been great where can people find you online um, you know I'm still on Twitter that's probably the easiest place to find me where I talk mostly about mostly about games so at Senfonglim S-E-N-F-O-O-N-G L-I-M on Twitter Um, But yeah, I am quite literally the only person with that name in the world, like the whole world, pretty much. So anything that you find with that name is 99.999999999% me. So feel free to reach out. And that's, that's cool.
0: Awesome. Sin, really appreciate you being here. Thanks, man.